So I'm always excited whenever there are movies that come out or whether there are books that come out that grab the attention of the American public. And so I've been so excited this season of films that have come out because they seem to address so many spiritual issues. The movie that became a best-selling book about Colton Burpo's experience of heaven. Heaven is for real. It's for real. Amen. And I've been amazed at all the people, both Christians and non-Christians, who have been drawn to these kinds of movies. The movie Noah. And I think uh, there's another movie called Repentance. There's a television show right now called Resurrection. And we're drawn to these kinds of films, and I'm always amazed that every time there's a book written about Jesus, that it immediately goes and becomes a bestseller, goes to the top of the New York Times bestsellers list, because there's something that draws us to Jesus. And philosophers and sociologists talk about the exocentricity of man, and it means that we're open to the transcendent. In other words, we all know that there's something more to this life than this life. And there's an inherent spirituality. There's a, the Bible puts it like this in Ecclesiastes 3.12. It says God has put eternity in our hearts. And so we long for something beyond ourselves, something spiritual, something that will enable us to come into contact with our Creator. And I think the most powerful movie, I love the movie God is Not Dead, but the most powerful movie, I love that movie, but the most powerful movie that I think came out was the movie called Son of God. Because the real issue is Jesus. And who is Jesus? And the great job of the church, the great job of SUM, is to help us proclaim Jesus to our generation. And that's what I want to talk to you about. So I want you to take your Bible this morning and turn to John's Gospel. Would you take your Bible or take your phone and turn to John's Gospel? And if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. Look on with someone who's sitting around you. You know, at SUM, we're committed not only to help you have a passion for God. And thank God I don't think there's a more passionate school that I've ever been to than SUM. Matter of fact, some of you are praying about whether or not God wants you to come to school here. And I want to tell you, I've already prayed about it, and God told me yes. Amen. So you just come on. And I don't think there's a more passionate school and a school that has a heart for God than this, than this college and this Bible school and seminary. But we also want to help, and we want to help you learn how to have hands for God. In other words, to do the work of the kingdom in very practical kinds of ways. But we also want you to develop a mind for God. Somebody say amen right there. So we want to help you learn how to think God's thoughts after Him so that you understand what God has revealed and inscripturated in the text of the Bible, and then to be able to look at me, listen, to clearly articulate. Let me tell you something, man. If there is ever a time, if there was ever a generation that needed a clear, clearly articulated message and understanding of who Jesus is, it is our generation. It's your generation. Because there's so much confusion about Jesus. The problem is not 
that people don't believe in Jesus. Man, everybody believes in Jesus. The problem is no one seems to know who Jesus is. And of course, that's the same thing that we find when we turn to the pages of the New Testament because all of the gospel writers, we call them the evangelists, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they were all trying to speak to their audience and paint a portrait of exactly who Jesus is. For example, look right here for a moment. When you read Matthew's Gospel, it becomes very evident that Matthew's audience is a Jewish audience. And so Matthew's Gospel is often called the Lion's Gospel because it presents Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's why at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, there's a long genealogy. And the genealogy is a kind of proof. It's, it's very important in Jewish culture to demonstrate that Jesus has the legal right to be the Messiah of Israel. And the most, the most frequently used phrase in Matthew's Gospel is the phrase, in order that it might be fulfilled. And so you see Jesus doing something. Maybe He raises someone from the dead or He heals someone. And then Matthew will quote an Old Testament passage and say, this was done in order that it might be fulfilled. And then what Matthew is trying to do is to contextualize his Gospel to his Jewish audience to say Jesus is indeed qualified to be Israel's Messiah. Now when you come to the Gospel of Mark, Mark is not concerned about the pedigree of Jesus because Mark is not writing primarily to Jews. He's writing primarily to Romans. And Romans were men of action. They didn't care about genealogies and pedigrees and who begat who. They cared about action. And so Mark's key phrase is the little phrase translated in the King James Version of the Bible straightway or in your, in your text maybe immediately. And so it shows Jesus casting out a demon and then immediately healing the sick and then and immediately teaching, and then immediately raising the dead. Why? Because Mark is trying to reach a Roman audience. When you read Dr. Luke, Luke's text is not geared toward Jews or Romans. Luke is the most sophisticated. And he has the most polished syntax of all the biblical writers in the Greek New Testament. He's a man of letters and a man of science. And his concern is to show that Jesus is the personification and the apex of all expectation of humanity. What the philosophers Socrates and Aristotle and Plato longed for, the perfection of humanity. Luke is saying you find that in Jesus. And that's why Luke always uses the phrase Son of Man. And his genealogy doesn't stop at, at David or Abraham. It goes all the way back to the first man, Adam, as if to say Jesus is the personification and the perfection of all the possibilities of humanity embodied in one person, this man, Jesus. But when you come to John's Gospel, you come to something altogether different. Because John is not content to say Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, or a great man of action, or even the personification of humanity. John goes back to the unbegun beginning, to eternity past, to say that Jesus is none other than the Son of God come in flesh. 
And so we read in John chapter 1 these words, and John's writing to this audience who are as confused as we are today about who Jesus is. And so look what he says in John chapter 1 verse 1. He says, in the beginning. Now everybody look right up here for a moment. In the Bible there are three beginnings. There's the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1, and the beginning of the gospel in Mark chapter 1, and then there's what John's referring to, the un, look, the unbegun beginning. Before there was anything else, when there was only God and God alone in the unbegun beginning was the Logos in the Greek New Testament. And it's translated word in your version of the Bible. And the word Logos, listen to me, was a word that was familiar with John's audience. John is contextualizing his gospel and message to his first century Greco-Roman audience. And they knew the word Logos because it's not a word that John coined. It's a word that was coined by the philosopher Plato. And Plato said, listen, he rejected the pantheon of the Greeks. He said, there's no place called Mount Olympus. You know, the Greeks believed that there were many gods who lived on Mount Olympus. And so there was Zeus, and there was Apollos, and Bacchus, and Aphrodite, and all these other gods. And, and Plato reflected on that, and he said, there's a Greek word for that. Baloney. Amen? He said, that's, there, that's not true. He said, listen, he said there's only one God. Plato was a monotheist. And Plato said that one eternal mind. Plato didn't believe in a personal God, but he believed there was one God who held all of reality together. And guess what he called that one God? He called that God the Logos. And so John is saying to his Greco-Roman audience, familiar with the works of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, he said, let me tell you about the Logos. Let me tell you about the one God, the one eternal mind that holds all of reality together. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was proston theon. The word pros is a preposition in Greek. It means toward. When you proceed, you move toward something. And the word pros is the root of prosopon in Greek, and it means face. And so what John is saying is, listen to this, the eternal mind that holds all of reality together was face to face with God. It's a term of equality. In other words, listen to this, in other words, what he's going to say is that Jesus is none other than God Himself. Jesus is God. He's not just a prophet. I was on an airplane not long ago. And when I get on an airplane, I do what I always do. I start talking to the people about Jesus. Amen. And so the plane took off the ground and we hit a little turbulence. And I found that's always a good time to bring up the Lord. Amen. And so the, the plane began to rock and roll. And I started talking to this lady. She was a very well-dressed lady. And you could tell she was very sophisticated. And she was very polished and very beautiful middle-aged lady. And I started telling her about Jesus and what Jesus had done in my life. And we prayed together because she was real uptight and nervous. And then after the plane smoothed out, she kind of put up her hand rather patronizingly. And here's what she said. She said, Oh, I believe in Jesus. And then she said, but I also believe in Buddha. And she said, I believe in Muhammad. 
And she said, I believe in Krishna. And she said, what most people in your generation believe. She said, I believe they were all wonderful teachers and gurus and avatars and ascended masters. But basically, they're all the same. Let me tell you something, my friend. I said, lady, there's only one problem with that. And that's Jesus. He's the problem with that. Because Jesus didn't claim to be a teacher. Buddha on his deathbed said, I'm still searching for truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Muhammad said, claimed to be a great prophet. Listen, my friend, but he's dead and his body's in Mecca. But Jesus is not a man who lived and then died. He's a man who died and now he lives. He is God. He's God. And in the beginning, before there was anything else, listen to me, there was, there was the, there was God, there was the triune God who existed in the persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, but the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Not three gods, one God who eternally exists in three separate but equal persons. And so in the unbegun beginning, there was the eternal mind that holds all of reality together. And that eternal mind, look at me, was face to face with God the Father. That is, listen to me, they, there's a distinction between the Son and the Father. The Son, the Logos, was face to face with God. And look, and God in the Greek text was the Word. And so they share the same substance. They share the same essence. They are equal God, and yet there's a distinction in the persons. And this one was in the beginning, verse number 2, with God. All things through Him have their origin, egoneto, their genesis. In other words, everything that we know, all of reality was created by Jesus. Amen? All things had their beginning in Him, and without Him, nothing had a beginning that began literally in verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind, and the light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness could not, watch this, take hold of it and snuff it out. In other words, Jesus is so powerful that there is no ideology, there is no political system, there is no economic system, there is no philosophy that can ever put out the light of Jesus Christ. Amen. All you've got to do is preach Him to a world that's longing for truth. Verse number 9 says, He is the true light that gives light to every man that is coming into the world. Listen to me, listen to me. Embedded within every culture, embedded within every culture, there is a hunger and there is a thirst for God. Every culture, we're incurably, innately religious. I go to West Africa and I spend time there among the Muslims and the animists. And the animists are people who believe that the spirits of their ancestors are are concentrated in sacred spaces like bodies of water or, or piles of rocks or in groves of trees. And they believe there is one Creator God. They call Him Yahweh. But they don't think, listen, they don't think you can get to that God. 
And so they say you have to go through the spirits of departed ancestors who serve as intermediators. Listen, they want to know God. They desire to know God. They're hungry for God. And so they go to these spaces. They go to these sacred bodies of water and they will sacrifice a a goat or they'll sacrifice a chicken or if they want to make a great sacrifice, they say there's nothing more powerful than blood. And they say there's nothing more powerful than human blood. And they say there's nothing more powerful than the blood of an innocent human being. And so they'll take their own children. And they'll sacrifice those children. Why? In order to try to get to God through their ancestors. You know what I tell them? I tell them you're seeing a lot of truth. Did you know Buddhism has truth? And Islam has truth. And all the great religions of the world has truth. And those animists, they see a little bit of light. But Jesus is the fullest expression and embodiment of all truth. And so here's what I tell them. I say there is a great God. He did create everything. You're right about that. And there is no way that you can get to Him. And so God sent an ancestor. There's only one way you can get to Him. And it's through an ancestor. And God sent an ancestor who was God and man in one person. And there is nothing more powerful than blood and the sacrifice of human blood and innocent blood. And there's only one innocent person who's ever lived. And His name's Jesus. And He stretched Himself out on a cross suspended between heaven and earth as though rejected by both. And on that cross, the One who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be made right with God. And if you'll come to God through Him who died for you and then rose from the dead. You can know this great God. And when I preach that message, they come to Jesus by the thousands, by the thousands. And it's the same in your generation. It's the same right here. I was preaching not long ago at the First Baptist Church in Mansfield, Louisiana. God moved in a powerful way. I'll be back there this fall in the football stadium. The churches are coming together for the gospel. Amen. And after the service that morning, I went to Pizza Hut. Amen. If I had enough pizza, I could get everybody in the world saved. Amen. I went to Pizza Hut. And when I walked in, listen to me. I saw two big, strong, tough guys in their early 20s. Big guys. And they were sitting in a booth and the Spirit of God said, go over there and talk to them about Jesus. I want to ask you a question. Look at me. Listen. When's the last time you told anybody about Jesus? I'm not talking about as some kind of an assignment, although thank God our student body is constantly shared, but I'm talking about when's the last time your heart was broken for somebody? You wept yourself to sleep at night and went without food for days saying, God, please save my best friend. God, save these, this neighborhood. God, save my mama, my daddy. When's the last time you've had a broken heart? And I walked in that pizza hut and I looked over and I saw those two young men look at me, listen, and God broke my heart for them. 
And the Holy Spirit of God said, go over there, tell them about Jesus. And so I walked over there, and I introduced myself, and I said, man, I just came out of church. I said, and today I talked about Jesus and how He died on the cross. And I started telling them what Christ had done in my life. And one guy got a big smile on his face. His name was Cody. And he looked over at his friend named Corey, who was sitting across the table at the booth. And he said, I told you he'd come over here. I told you he'd come over here. And I said, well, Cody, do I know you? And he said, man, I was at church this morning. And he said, this is my friend Corey. He didn't go to church. We're having lunch. And I said, Corey, man, have you ever given your life to Christ? Look at me. He said, I never have. I said, man, what's keeping you from being saved? And Corey, this big, strong roughneck in the oil patch, started weeping in the booth at Pizza Hut. He said, man, I don't know. I said, would you like to give your life to Christ right now? He said, I would. And the pastor and his wife came in. I said, man, come over here. This is Corey. They said, we know Corey. We've been praying for Corey. I said, man, Corey wants to give his life to Christ. I said, let's stand up. Listen, man, and right there by the salad bar at Pizza Hut in Mansfield, Louisiana, we all stood up. Corey got down on his knees and began to weep, saying, Jesus, come into my life. we got to tell people about Jesus. And when we tell them about Jesus, we have to tell him, listen to me, that he is the eternal God who stepped down the starry steps of eternity into time and wrapped up His deity in flesh. And the Creating One became the Cradled One. And the Infant was at the same time the Infinite. God became a man. The Bible says in verse 14 that the Word became flesh. He became flesh. Sartre, in other words, He literally, the Bible says, He dwelt among us. Eskinosin. It's the same word used in the intertestamental period. Translated glory. The, the glory of God. The Shekinah. Same consonants in that word. In other words, listen, where God's glory once dwelt in a garden and we messed that up and then God moved His glory to a tabernacle and we messed that up and then God put His glory in a temple, but we worship the temple instead of the God of the temple and we messed that up and God said, finally, I'm going to do something y'all can't mess up. I'm going to come down there myself. And so the Bible says that Jesus, listen to me, the eternal Son of God came and pitched His tent, as it were, in flesh. God became a man. And this blew the mind of John's first century audience because they were steeped in something that would later become Gnosticism. There was a false teacher in the city of Ephesus where John lived and wrote this book called Serenthus. And Serenthus said that Jesus was just a man. He said Jesus was just a man upon whom the Spirit of the Christ came at His baptism and left at His crucifixion when Jesus cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He said Jesus is just a man. And then there were a group of Gnostics called the Docetic Gnostics. Dokeo in Greek means to seem or to appear. And they said, no, you got it wrong, Serenthus. Jesus was not just a man upon whom the Spirit of the Christ came. He was pure spirit because they were steeped in Neoplatonism. And Plato taught that there are two realms. The realms of the non-corporeal and the spiritual and the ethereal and the immaterial. And then the realm of the physical and the corporeal, the sarks in Greek, the flesh... And they said that no, there's no way that the, that that which is eternal can come into contact with that which is physical and material. And so they said Jesus simply appeared to be a man, but if you tried to touch him, he was like an apparition or a hologram. Your hand would go right through him. And so one group was saying he's just a man, and the other group was saying no, he's pure spirit. And in one verse, John blows both of those Gnostic tendencies away when he says, "No, God became flesh." She became meat. 
God became a man. Two natures in one person. Why would God do that? That's the question that the 12th century theologian Anselm asked in his book, Cur Deus Homo. Why would God become a man? And here's what he said, and I think he's right, and I'm finished. Listen, he said, God became a man because only a man could die in the place of other men. You see, that's why Jesus came. Jesus was a great teacher, but He didn't come primarily to teach. Jesus was a great prophet. He is the Word became flesh. But He didn't come primarily to prophesy. He was a great miracle worker. He touched lame limbs and people danced with joy in the presence of God. He opened blind eyes and for the first time a daddy could look down in the face of his little son he'd never seen before. He took a little boy's sack lunch, five loaves and two fishes, and turned it into an all-you-could-eat seafood buffet. Amen? I mean, he was a great miracle worker. But listen to me. You know why He really came? He came to die. And every step He ever took down dusty Palestinian trails led Him one step closer to His appointment with death. And so they stripped Him of His clothing. And then they took what was called a cat of nine tails, a scourge, a flagellum. And it consisted of a heavy club with nine long strands of leather. And at the end of each piece of leather, a piece of rock or bone or metal or glass. And that soldier, like an artist, painting strokes on a canvas so skilled with that scourge, began to beat the body of Jesus. And when those pieces of rock and bone and metal and glass whistle through the air that He spoke into existence, they would stick in His body. This was no, this was no aphorism. This, this was no ethereal nebulous. This was, this was man. This was flesh. This was God in a body. And those pieces of rock and bone and metal would stick in His body. And when the soldier whisked away the whip, literally hunks of flesh would fly from His body five and ten and 20 and 30 and 40 times times 6 and 9 and more until bones were exposed and muscles were heaving and His raw nerve endings must have made His whole body feel like it was on fire. Most men never survived the Roman scourge. Their intestines fell out in front of their own eyes when they hit the ground before they died. But they beat Jesus until He looked like a piece of raw meat. Listen to me. And then they cut the rope that held His hands. And Jesus' body slumped into the ground that He made, that He created. This is God in the flesh. And then they said, oh, you say you're a king, huh? We're going to have some fun with you, you dirty, rotten Jew. We're going to show you what happens to every dirty Jew that dares raises his voice against our Caesar Go get him a crown. And so they ran into the Judean hillside and they took their law, their hands of hatred and plucked the, the long thorns and they formed and fashioned with their cruel hands a crown of thorns and they put it on his sinless brow. And Jesus bore on his sinless brow the curse of all humanity. They took a stick and put it in his right hand and they got a purple soldier's garment and they draped it around his bloody beaten shoulders and they began to bow before him and mock homage saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they started torturing him. They took their big hands and they ripped his beard out by the roots and they took their fists and they pounded away at him until his eyes were swollen and puffy and his lips were bruised and broken and his teeth were loosened and his face was disfigured and they cleared their throats and they spit in his face and they, they hit him over and over and over again and they spit on him. They took the stick and beat him in the head until it drove the thorns deeper and deeper into his brow and he was blinded by his own blood and then they hit him and they spit on him and they kicked him. That's God come in the flesh, my friend. 
And then they said, now we're going to crucify you. We're going to show you what Rome does to any insurrectionist who dares lift his voice. You say you're a king. And so they said, go get the cross. It was 90 to 110 pounds, the horizontal beam, an old rugged cross, and they laid it upon his bloody beaten shoulders. And you can imagine that the, that the splinters began to work their way into the open wounds of Jesus as the soldiers said, March! 650 yards up the Via Della Rosa, the pathway of pain, and on the way to the top of that skull-shaped mountain up that crooked hill that day, went God, listen to me, went God in the flesh. Why would God become a man? Because only a man could die in the place of other men. And that was my cross he was carrying. That was my judgment he was enduring. When they got Jesus to the top of that skull-shaped hill, they pulled his arms out taut, and they took nine-inch nails and positioned them in his wrist so as not to break a bone. And they took a heavy mallet, and they dropped it hard on the head of those spikes, and they drove those spikes through the flesh and the tissue and the nerve and the sinew of his left hand and his right hand. And they crossed his feet and drove a nail through his feet, and they raised the cross up high in the air and dropped it in a huge hole in the ground. And with the bottom of that cross, hit the bottom of that hole all his bones came out of joint and there's Jesus man God in the flesh he could have snapped his finger he could have thought one thought he could have whispered one prayer and all of heaven's angels mounted on white angelic horses would have been there in a flash to take him down off that cross man that was God in that body but he didn't he stayed there nails didn't keep him on the cross man his love for you kept him on the cross And there's Jesus covered with spit and sweat and dirt and blood. And do you know what else covered Him that day? Look at me, man. Every sin that you've ever committed. Every sin I've ever committed. Because the Bible says we've all sinned. Amen. We've all broken God's law and God's a holy God. And He's a righteous God. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And the soul that sinneth it shall surely die. And Jesus, look at me, listen, came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He made peace between us and God on the cross. And God poured out all of His judgment and wrath that you deserve and I deserve on Jesus. And the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be made right with God. And they took His body down off that cross. And they put Him in a hole in the ground. And they rolled a big stone over the mouth of the tomb. And they said, that's it. We've heard the last of Him. The Roman authorities got together and said, that's what happens to everyone who defies our King And the Jewish religious establishment who had conspired with the Romans to put him to death, they said, we'll never hear from that would-be itinerant carpenter, that that, that, that guy from Nazareth, that carpenter. What was his name? Oh yeah, Jesus. The world's heard the last of him. And the devil and the demons of hell got together and threw a party in the belly of hell. And they said, we've killed the Son of God. Now humanity is ours. And they'll never be free. And they'll never know the love of their Creator. We've won. And so they put Jesus in a hole in the ground and His cold, dead, clammy body lay for three days and three nights. He didn't swoon. He didn't pass out. He was dead. His body lay dead in a tomb in Jerusalem. And they rolled a big stone over the mouth of the tomb and they said, that's it. It's over. And His disciples ran for fear of their life. But early in the morning on the first day of the week, listen to me, my friend. The Bible says that first Easter morning that Mary Magdalene, a former prostitute, who Jesus had set free and she never got over what Jesus had done in her life. You know what I'm telling you? The problem with some of us, we've gotten over what Jesus has done in our life. The easiest place to backslide is in Bible college. Because Jesus is all around you. 
But I wonder if he's really broken your heart for the lost. So they rolled that big stone over the mouth of the tomb and Mary came to anoint and embalm his body with spices as one last act of worship and devotion for her Lord who she loved. When she got to the tomb, she found the stone was rolled away. And she looked inside of the tomb. Listen to me, my friend. And the tomb was empty. And she found out that Jesus was not dead. He is not a man who lived and then died. He's a man who died and now He lives. He is alive. He's alive. And He's the answer the whole world's looking for. Why would God become a man? Because only a man could die for the sins of other men. And only a man who was at the same time God could die for the sins of all men who have ever lived throughout history. And that's our message. That's what changed my life. 34 years ago, in a jail cell in Fort Worth, Texas, a teenage alcoholic, a drug addict, my mama was 15. When she got pregnant with me, man, nobody in our family knew God. My grandparents on both sides were alcoholics my grandfather literally drank himself to death and so my parents teenagers got married because that's what you did in those days if you got your girlfriend pregnant you got married and so my parents got married but they didn't know god we moved in a little town area of town called the dog patch in wichita falls texas in a little hovel of a home there was a Southern Baptist church six blocks from our house. Look at me, friend. As far as I know, nobody from that church ever came and knocked on the door and said to my teenage mom and dad, Hey, why don't you all come to our church? Why don't you bring your little baby? Or better than that, why don't you kids give your life to Christ? As far as I know, nobody ever came. I often wondered what a difference it might have made in my life and in my parents' marriage if somebody would... Look at me. If somebody would have just cared. Do you care? My mom started running a bar. Both my parents became serial adulterers. When I was seven years old, I came home from second grade like many of you. Man, I know your story. I stood between my mom and my dad and dodged flying pots and pans and ashtrays and accusations and cuss words and my parents said, we're not going to be married anymore. And I don't know how to explain it other than to say that that day something died on the inside of me. I became a very angry little boy. I started getting in trouble at school when I was in eighth grade. Somebody introduced me to alcohol. They said, you'll like this. And I did. Two years later, I was an alcoholic. There wasn't a day of my life that I went by where I wasn't drunk. When I was a sophomore in high school, somebody handed me to the gateway drug, marijuana. They said, you'll like this. And two years later, even though on the outside I looked like I had it all together, 220-pound fullback going to play college football, strutting up and down the halls of my high school with my letter jacket on like I had the world by the tail. But it was just me and four walls in darkness. I cried myself to sleep at night, man. Because I didn't think anybody cared about me. I was lonely in the midst of all my so-called friends. I was lonely and I felt so ashamed and so guilty because I knew my life was not right and I was afraid to die. I thought many times about taking my own life, but I knew I wasn't ready to meet God. My best friend was the biggest dope dealer in our town. His dad was in the Mexican Mafia. And so I started running the streets. I became a thug. I sold dope. When I was 17 years old in a geometry class, there were three girls, listen to me, and I'm done, who got a burden for my soul. 
They went to a little Baptist church out in the country where the Spirit of God had settled down on that youth group. And when they came together, they didn't play little youth group games or go on youth group trips. They got on their face and they begged God to send revival to our high school. I found out later they made a top ten list of the worst kids in our high school who they wanted to see saved that year. And guess who made number one? You're looking at him right now, man. They started praying for me. God save Scott Camp. One day in that geometry class, Kelly, I'll never forget her. We're friends to this day. Tapped me on the shoulder and there were tears. Look, there were tears in her eyes. And they were streaming down her cheeks at 8 o'clock in the morning. She said, Scott, you know why you're so miserable? I said, why don't you tell me? And she said, because you don't know Jesus. And another girl said, Scott, Jesus loves you, and He died for you. They shared with me the gospel. He died for you, and He rose from the dead. And another girl said, Scott, Jesus can save you, man. And I wish I could tell you I fell on my knees and said, God, save me. But I didn't. I stood up, took God's name in vain, said, I don't even believe there is a God, and stormed out of that classroom. But I was under such conviction. That little girl found me later that day and said, I'm going to pray for you every day until God changes your life. Listen to me. A month later, in a nightclub on Cooper Street in Arlington, Texas, called Grand Central Station, two Arlington police officers who'd been looking for me for a long time finally caught up with me. They arrested me, booked me on a felony charge, later transferred me to a jail cell in Fort Worth, Texas. And 34 years ago, last month, sitting in a jail cell covered with my own vomit, Addicted to drugs, addicted to alcohol, no hope, filthy vocabulary, filthy heart, broken relationships, kicked out of my own house in that jail cell. I can't explain it. Listen to me. I can't explain it. I have three master's degrees. I'm, I'm completing a doctorate. I take theology very seriously. I preached out of a Greek New Testament today. But there are some things that our mind cannot comprehend. Christianity is not irrational, but it's transrational. It's beyond our ability to understand it all and grasp it all in our minds. Somehow the Spirit of God, listen, came blowing into that jail cell and like air coming into my lungs convicted me of my sin, pointed me to Jesus. I walked into the jail cell one person. I walked out of the jail cell a different person because of the power of Jesus. Jesus. Now listen to me. That's what your generation needs. More than they need anything else, they need Jesus. Amen. They need to know who God is, what He's done, that He came in flesh, took on flesh, went to the cross, rose from the dead, and He's the Savior and the Healer and the Forgiver and the Deliverer. He sets people free, and He's what the whole world needs. Amen? No matter who you are, you need Jesus. If you're an astronomer, He's the bright morning star. If you're a baker, He's the bread come down from heaven. If you're a carpenter, He's the door. If you're a doctor, He's the great physician. If you're an electrician, He's the light of the world. If you're a farmer, He's the Lord of the harvest. If you're a geologist, He's the rock of ages. If you're a horticulturist, He's the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. If you're a jeweler, He's the pearl of great price. If you're a king, He's the king of kings. If you're a lawyer, He's our advocate with the Father. If you're a mortician, He's the resurrection and the life. If you're an optometrist, He made the blind man see. If you're a philosopher, He's the truth. If you're a traveler, He's the way. He's Jesus. He's Jesus. He's Jesus. He's what the whole world needs.